jump over to Judges chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to run real quickly through the, the account of, of um, Deborah and Barak and, uh, because their story really fits well with the account or with the, the thought of what we have this morning about what it, what it is to do what God has called us to do. So as you're, uh, as you're turning over there, you're listening, hopefully, that, so we have after Shamgar, this, we're going a little bit back in time from where we were before, so this is back to after Shamgar, and the king of Hazor has oppressed Israel for 20 years. Now, those of you who've been reading ahead and behind and keeping up and all that kind of stuff, you realize the Hazorites were among the first people that, that, that the people of Israel were supposed to wipe out, and they failed to do so. So they failed to um, remove these people from the land, and now these very same people have oppressed them for 20 years. Now, they, it's, it's pretty rough, apparently. And so it, it's, here's what's interesting. So some of you remember this from a couple of weeks ago. The Hazarites have a powerful army, and they have 900, you guessed it, iron chariots. Those of you who were here a few weeks ago, you remember that iron chariots are God's kryptonite, right? That's a joke. If you weren't here, you'll have to go back and listen to that. But that's how people have interpreted sometimes Judges chapter 1, where it talks about the people of Judah not being able to conquer the people with iron chariots. And we, we, we delved into that and don't have time to jump into that today. But they aren't really his, his kryptonite, and you're about to see that that is the case. So 900 iron chariots, which is a whole lot. Um, they have oppressed them cruelly, and someone named Deborah appears on the scene. Um, Deborah, whose name means bee. As in, B. Um, that's interesting, and we've talked about how important names are to the Hebrew people. Um, there is a lot of detail as to why bees are so significant in the land of Israel, why they're so important, and all that kind of stuff. But here's, here's one thing that, that um, one commentary said. Probably, why would you have this powerful woman of God named Bee? Is because her sting is painful and her honey is sweet. There you go. That seems pretty simple, right? Israel was supposed to represent the same thing. There's a lot more we could go into there, but we're not going to. Um, in verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. That's a, that's a handy name for the palm tree that she sat under, right? Um, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment, and she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Nephtali. I should have asked one of y'all to read this. I can tell already. And said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephtali and the people of Zebulon? So she's, um, she's married to a man whose name means flame or maybe light. And she's going to lead a man whose name is Lightning into battle. So, so the bee is surrounded by the flame and the lightning. And she, he, Lightning, Barak, says, I am not willing to go into battle without you. Um, so here you have this great mighty warrior. And he says, when she says, listen, there's, God has given an instruction. Now is the time to gather 10,000 men from these two tribes. And you need to go take out the Hazarites that are doing this. God has said it is time. And he says, hmm, tell you what, you go with me, and then I'll do it. So this is less than quick and immediate and unquestioning obedience, and this is, this is going to cost Barak a little bit. Not huge, it's not huge, but it's enough to get Barak's attention, I think. And the next time, Deborah is going to give him an instruction from God, there's not going to be this hesitation. I think that's, that's cool. I think, I think we see in Barak... A lesson learned here. But so 
Um, I don't go with a woman. I won't go without you. So she says, Deborah says, if you aren't willing to go without a woman, then a woman is going to take your glory from you. That's all she says. Now, you got to know, who does Barak think she's talking about? Who is the woman who's going to take his glory? She is. you got to know he thinks that she's talking about herself. She's not. I don't even know if she knew that, but maybe he assumed it was her. It's a gentle rebuke for his hesitation. So he makes a little bargain. We talked about bargains with Jephthah last week. He makes a little bargain, and it costs him. Bargaining rather than obedience, bad call. Then you run into this person, the Kenites, doing their... Now, now this, here's what's interesting. Here's how I wrote this, okay? This is meant to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but it also shows the trustworthiness of Scripture. One of the things I love about the book of Judges is that it's presented to us very much so as a historical reference. It, at times, places, people are intentional, the way they're connected together in this book. Very often you will see, especially in the modern kind of neo-atheist perspective, is a, a strong criticism of the Bible as a historical book. It, it's not meant to be a history textbook. And so if you go to it studying it as a history text, you're going to be disappointed. That's not its main purpose. But so here, here's, here's what I wrote. So, this is, this is, so if, you're, if you're an original reader, let me tell you where your brain goes. I wrote, now you're probably wondering what a Kenite like Haber is doing near Kadesh. I mean, Right? You follow me? Because the Kenites are usually found in South Israel, as we all know. Really, it's simple. He had cut ties with his own family, at least to some degree, and had decided to pitch his tents, Bedouin, like a big Bedouin camp, further away. That's why. Just to calm your thoughts on that. That's why the book of Judges has that. For you, you'd probably skim right over that. I skim right over that. All this information about the Kenites. Or what, I mean, he cut, he cut ties with his, why do I care? Well, you may not. But the original authors, the original readers, they read that and they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Kenites are in South Israel. They're not in Central Israel. That's a mistake. So the writer has to explain to that audience, no, no, it's not a mistake. He's an exception. He had cut ties with his family. Do you see how authentic that is? That's just how you would write it. That's just, you, you would say like, would you say Minnesota? So... So Sean says, you know, if I'm up in Minnesota, something like, and you're going, and you, if, you, if you don't know, if, if Sean doesn't explain, you might go, what? What do you mean, what do you mean a guy who sometimes is in Minnesota isn't, that, that can't be right. He's supposed to be Minnesota, not, no, no. He was here this Sunday because of compassion. Like, you would feel the need maybe to explain. Maybe you've got family who's here that you would say, like, they're, they're from Florida, or they're from some other state or something. Well, what are they doing here? Oh, they're here for vacation. And same thing, explanation, because the listener is going to go, that doesn't sound right. Okay? I love that about this book. The whole Bible, but especially this one, they cover this. So this time, so they go up on Mount Tabor. They're up on Mount Tabor, which is a very safe place to be. It's in the middle of the valley of Jezreel. It's this giant hill that's in the middle of the valley of Jezreel. The valley is where chariots are dangerous. Hillsides, they pose no threat. So they gather on Mount Tabor, and at some point she says, Now. So the, the, the 900 chariots and all these soldiers gather around Mount Tabor and he says, Deborah goes to Barak and says, now, go. Hasn't God said? She, she puts things in form of a question, which is a cool prophet thing. Hey, she walks up to him. I picture it. She walks up to him. He's like, hasn't God said it's time to go? And Barak's going, you would have to tell me, right? I mean, you're the prophetess. And so he goes. No question. He takes 10,000 men. Maybe there's more, but 10,000 just. And he attacks down into the plains. Bad, terrible idea, right? This sounds like God at work. 
we talked about how Jephthah's story, you know, Jephthah's uh, plan or, or um, Ehud's plan to hide a dagger on his thigh. That sounds like worldly plans. We could come up with that. I'm going to lie my way into the court. I'm going to lie my way to this, and I'm going to stab the guy, and I'm going to sneak away, and I'm going to mix for a good movie plot that we would understand. This goes back to doing it kind of God's way, which is a way that doesn't make good worldly sense to us sometimes. So here we have Barak immediately comes down the hillside, face the chariots in the plains near the river. Now we know from Judges 5, so Judges 5.20 says, this is in the middle of the song that Barak and, De- and uh, Deborah write. From heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera, who's the, the general of the um, Hazarite army. The torrent Kishon, the name of the river there, swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Many commentaries, and I, I agree with this, believe a storm hit as they attacked. Now, the Valley of Jezreel is at, at or below sea level. What happens when a storm hits in the Valley of Jezreel, would you guess? Especially when you have a river flowing through it. You're going to get a flood. And what's, it going, to, what's, what's going to happen to these chariots when the storm hits? And it all turns out they're going to all get bogged down and waterlogged and caught up in the river and... Um, I think that's likely the miracle that God provided in the midst of this battle where 900 chariots should be wiping out these 10,000 foot soldiers and instead, all of a sudden, the chariots are locked in place. They are worthless before God. Sisera himself, the general, abandons his chariot apparently and runs for it. His men are being slaughtered left and right all around him. You get different numbers um, from different people throughout history, but it's a bunch I mean, the, the Hazarites are slaughtered here. How memorable a battle? David writes about it generations later, Psalm 83. Due to them, talking about it, due to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor. Endor is the area right there where there's a whole lot that goes on from Endor. Not, not the moon from Star Wars. If that's what you got, in this case, you're wrong. Rarely is Star Wars the wrong answer, but in this case, it's the wrong answer. Sisera flees. He flees. He actually may go the opposite direction of the rest of his men. He is truly in self-preservation mode. He runs to one of these tents. Oh, now these these Kenite people come into play. Now we understand why they were introduced to us before. He runs to their tents. He runs to them. He runs towards a woman's tent. Apparently, that would have been more secure. Men weren't allowed in women's tents. They're still not in that part of the world. And, And so he goes. She comes out to get him. Like as he's coming towards a tent, this jail runs out. She, she comes out to, um, to get him. I'm going to get into this. This is, some, this is a, one of those wild stories again that we get. Um, she comes and invites him to her tent and hides him under probably an animal skin or a rug or something like that. He asks for a drink of water. She gives him buttermilk. This is kind of lost on us today on the significance of this. It's either nicer, something better to give him, meaning she's treating him like royalty um, a lot of commentaries indicated that maybe it was fermented, that what she's doing is she's essentially putting him to sleep, getting him sleepy. So at some point he falls asleep, and she kills him by driving a tent peg through his head. Lovely, right? I mean, this is, wow. So just so you'll know, we've talked a lot about Middle Eastern hospitality. We've talked about the rules of of how important that is. As we, as we look at Abraham and we, we build our church's hospitality model after that, that Middle Eastern mindset, this, this is a bad example of Middle Eastern hospitality. This, in fact, she's really risking the rejection of her own people by doing this. This is not cool. You're supposed to, when you invite someone into your tent, you're supposed to protect them with your life. 
And not only is she not protecting him with her life, but she's driving a tent peg through his head. I don't know if that's specifically referenced in the hospitality laws, but I'm guessing it's not cool. Why? Why did she do this? The Bible does not give us insight into her motives. Did she know this man personally? Did she have reason personally not to trust him? There was peace between her family and his kingdom. But was there something going on? There's more to the story that we don't know that maybe the original writers and readers did know. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Did she know that the uh, defeating... If Sisera's running by himself covered in mud and blood away from a battle, did she suspect that there was an enraged Israeli army coming right behind them and that protecting him would probably mean the decimation of her whole family and people? Maybe. That's, she still is not supposed to do that by their laws. But we don't know. The essential answer seems to be this. Because the God had declared this man dead. And God was going to make use of someone to finish off Sisera. Barak lost his chance to be that person. To get the glory of defeating the enemy general himself. He defeated him on the battlefield with the power of God, but now Barak doesn't be, get to be the one to actually slay his enemy. A woman in a tent, and in a kind of honestly shameful way, is the one who does it. An otherwise unknown woman gets the credit for killing Sisera. There's a lot to this that we don't understand. Remember, we talked about that with the book of Judges as a whole. We read stuff and we go, how did God feel about her killing him this way? The Bible doesn't say. In the end, what happened was God's will was imposed upon Sisera and his people. They were defeated. They should have been defeated a long time ago. This situation should never have been created in the first place. But Israel's failure to obey when they were called to obey led to a string of consequences that eventually lead to an opportunity for Barak to obey, which he hesitates in. He's taught a little lesson. The next time he gets a chance to obey, he does it unquestioningly. Barak and Deborah and the army shows up. Jael comes out and says, I know where the man is you're looking for. He's in my tent. Um, but you're going to have to come pull him up out of the ground because he has a tent peg going all the way through his head and into the dirt below. Um, it's an amazing, terrifying kind of picture. The people of God were living in a situation um, that had cost them for 20 years. Deborah and perhaps Barak together write a song about it. They write a poem, essentially a psalm, that we get in Judges chapter 5. Judges chapter 5, verse 2, is kind of the theme verse in many ways for the entire book. The leaders took, took the lead in Israel, and the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. That's a big deal. What people do when his, what God does when his people willingly offer themselves. The idea here seems to be in the book of Judges is that when God's people will follow the people he puts in place or the leaders he puts in place, but most importantly, when they will just offer themselves to him willingly, it seems to be there's nothing that cannot be accomplished by them. There's no enemy who can't be defeated, including 900 iron chariots, which again, remember, was supposed to be impossible. Not impossible. God could have done this at any point. He was looking for his people to obey. They obey, and they win. That's the, that's what the pattern. When they obey, wonderful, amazing, miraculous, outside of the box, unmeasurable things happen. That's the picture that we get. God had told them back in Leviticus that if they continued to disobedience, their roads would eventually grow over from lack of usage. 
And that's what had happened under the Hazarite leadership. The people had become so poor, so cowardly, they had no weapons. All they had were new gods. Judges 5.8 says, When new gods were chosen and war was at the gates, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? Meaning it wasn't. The people of Israel had given up. They'd start worship. They'd picked new gods for themselves, and everything else was the consequence of that. Again, not a hard representation to see of our current culture. It's not a nice poem, by the way. This is a hard-toned, edgy war poem. Um, this is an era where there is war on all sides. Decades of people trading enslavement back and forth amongst themselves. In the end, Deborah, who is a woman, actually, you will see if you read this whole poem, mocks the mother of Sisera as his mother is waiting for him to come home from battle. That's hard-edged. When you are mocking the mother of your defeated foe as she sits in her room waiting for her son to come home, and Deborah is mocking her for this. She mocks, saying that, De that, that Sisera's mother is waiting for him to bring home stockpiles of treasure. She makes Sisera's mother such a hard-edged person that at one point Sisera lauds the fact that her son is going to have so much treasure that there's probably going to be one or two women for each man. This is about pillaging and worse. That Sisera's mother is celebrating that and Deborah is mocking her for it. As she's waiting for her son to come home, he's not coming home. Deborah knows that. I wondered if Deborah has a son in battle or if she's already lost a son to Sisera and his people. I don't, we don't know Deborah's story enough to know what put this kind of edge on her. But she is tough about this issue. Then we get to the power part of this poem. I'm going to wrap up this part of our time today with this. Who will, who, what will God do when his people willingly offer themselves when you, he, she reminds them over and over again, they say this through the poem. When you get to be safe and have wealth and visit wells in safety, remember that God did this thing. They honor the tribes that sent soldiers to lead and fight, and they mock those that did not in their poem. Judges 5.15 has examples of both. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar was faithful to Barak, and the valley they rushed at his heels but among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of the heart. This is mockery. In other words, the, prince, the people of Reuben, they were still thinking about joining. They were still thinking about it. The literal language there. They were sitting. My pastor, I had a pastor when I was a teenager who used to reference that, that most people in the church spend most of their time sitting on their, and he said, quote, blessed assurance. That's what he would say every time. You're out there sitting on your blessed assurance. They, that they were literally sitting, and they were still thinking. They were thinking. They're thinking about joining in the battle. That deep thoughts, deep thoughts about joining the battle. Serious consideration about joining in. Later, one town called Miros is actually cursed because apparently they had a chance to engage in the situation directly, but they were too busy thinking about joining the battle. Now, I'm about to turn this over to Sean in just a second. I want to let you know Part of why I was excited about having compassion here for the experience, having Sean here, um, having John and his team and all the other stuff we have going on is because one of the first times I can remember as a Christian in quick, unquestioning obedience was at a Rich Mullins concert. I was 19 years old. Uh, man, did I love Rich Mullins concerts. Um, every time I, I was, a, I, I'm not, wasn't a groupie, but I, I was close. I mean, I, I've, 
I still have the photo from the Nacogdoches, Nacogdoches newspaper that shows they took a picture of, of Rich like from this angle, and Ginger and I are sitting right there on the front. He's sitting with his feet dangling off. Like Anyway, I don't want to get on a Rich Mullins kick here. but um, So Rich, at the end of a Rich Mullins concert, Rich just kind of threw out, hey, by the way, the Compassionate National people are out there in the foyer. Stop and, stop and adopt a Compassionate National child. You don't need to wonder whether you should do this. Just do it. Um, Rich was not known for his diplomacy. So I did at 19 years old. I walked out. I said, hand me a card. And they were like, do you have a place or a birthday or anything? I was like, no, I just, can't, I, I don't, hand me one. So they handed me the card for Eko Septikian, a three-year-old boy in Indonesia. And, and Eko, I started supporting Eko when he was three and I was 19. And 15 years later, after supporting Eko, Eko graduated out of the program. Um, and not only I, but Compassion International has lost track of him since then. He's probably just going on to live his life. But here's what struck me every month. So I, I've told you before about that, that I'm, one of the things I want God to grow me up in more and more is learning to be a faithful prayer a little bit of a doer. And so in this situation, what I will tell you is I have no idea, and I don't think I'll know till heaven what the consequence of this is, but every single letter that I got from Eco, Eco began with saying, Papa Chris, I pray for you and your family every day. Now, when he first started, my family was me. I didn't have a girlfriend, even. Since, since the, during those 15 years, though, I, I met my wife and got married and had kids and started in the ministry, all under the covering prayers of Eko Septikian, a little boy in Indonesia who prayed more faithfully for me and my family than I did. What is that going to mean in heaven? How much partial credit do I get versus the full credit that Eko's going to get for any of my ministry? I don't know. But let me tell you. So when we're done here, we have two right now, by the way, uh, James and Pamela. These are the two we've got now. One of them, their birthday is the same as Holland's. That's, that's on purpose. I actually don't remember which one. I think Pamela. Um, you can do that kind of stuff. Pick a place, pick a birth date, that kind of stuff. I, I feel like this is one of those where, and there's lots of these. I mean, there's lots and lots of these. If you're a Christian, if you're not actively engaged, if you have not willingly offered yourself to something, these are, compassion is an example of what happens when people willingly turn themselves over to what God wants them to do. I remember as a child hearing that 40,000 children a day starve to death. A day. A couple of years ago at a situation, I just randomly heard somebody say, and they didn't, I mean, they were like using this as an urgency thing. And they said, did you know that 25,000 children a day starve to death? And I was like, well, I thought it was 40,000. Did a little research. Between world vision and compassion and others, even with the growth of the world's population, a net advantage of about 15,000 kids being able to eat every day. There's no reason not to finish off the others. It's not very expensive, I'm telling you. It will serve you probably more. Let me encourage you. Sean's going to come talk way more about the big picture of this, but whether it is Compassion International, which is an example of what God does when his people willingly offer themselves, or Dulos, or Magdalene Home, or Royal Family Kids Camp and Track, the Mentoring Alliance, Thomas Ministry, InterVarsity, Stephen Ministry, International Mission Board. We have thousands of ministries that we support and that we're involved in. If you're still thinking about it, stop thinking about it. There's, the, the battle is ongoing, and you're still sitting somewhere thinking about it. Not, it doesn't have to be this one, although it probably should be this one and another one, and another one maybe. But 
Should it be this one? Maybe. Certainly here, yes. But if you're not involved and engaged in what God is doing when his people get involved, you're missing out. So please let me encourage you. If it's compassion, do that. Great, this morning, go do it. So let me, let me pray. We're going to take an offering here. I'm going to pray. Sean's going to come up and, and lead us during this. I'm going to pray. We're going to do the, the offering thing. So when I'm done, just grab those baskets off the side and pass them to, over to the middle or whatever. So let me pray for us. I'm going to turn the rest of the service over to Sean, and we're going to get a lot more of this. But I want you to go into the last part of the service with that mindset. What will God do when his people willingly offer themselves? Let's find out. Father, how amazing that you would let us be involved in what you're doing. What a gift to us. Like you don't, you don't need us. You choose us and you allow us to be involved. What, a, what an amazing gift. God, I, I would, whether it's compassion, I would love to have a church full of, of people who are supporting every single person, every single member would have a ministry that they're involved in here at this local church, that they would have a ministry they're involved in in this community and surrounding communities. They'd have a ministry they're involved in around the world mainly just because I want there to be hordes of kids around the world who are praying for us because we desperately need it as a church and as a people and as a nation. And maybe their prayers will motivate you um, to encourage our hearts to the point where we will turn back to you. And we need that. We need their prayers. Father, I, I'm convinced of that. So I pray, Lord, that you would guide us as a church to be involved with what you're doing. Thank you in your son's name. Amen. Well, I have never preached a doubleheader before. Apparently, this is normal here. Normal has certainly changed since I grew up here. I grew up here in Tyler, Texas. My parents are part of this church. My sister and her husband and her kids, my nieces and nephews are all part of this church. So many familiar faces here. It's so good to be here. I'm at the end of, I've been in 18 cities in 21 days. You're number 19, and uh, so today I get to go home, but I am so exhausted. I'm running on fumes, and it's just been life-giving to be here, to get a hug from my parents, to sleep in a house and not a hotel. It's been fantastic. She made me biscuits. There was no continental breakfast at the Hampton Inn. It was fantastic. It was so good. It's so good to finish this little bit of time I've been away from home with, uh, you know, it's so good to be here with fajitas. I mean, family. It's good to be here. It's really good. Well, I'm getting a little bit of feedback here. Can you guys get rid of that? It's distracting me. Probably not going to distract them, but I'm a little ADD. That might mess with me. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chip. Well, I have a, a, a three-part sermon for you, three points. Baptist Church, you got to have three points, right? So first point is, the first point is God's mission. What is God's mission? The second point is God's command. What is God's command as it relates to his mission? And lastly, what is God's method for accomplishing that mission? So God's mission, God's command, and then God's method. God's mission, we go to Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 16, here's a bit of the context, the backstory. God's children are making the long journey from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And on this long road trip, God's kids get a little hungry and a lot whiny. And so God pulls over the minivan and has a talk with his children through the babysitter Moses. And he says these words. I will rain down bread from heaven for you every day, and each day you are to go out and gather enough for that day. This is a test to see if you will obey my instructions. 
go out every day and take only your daily bread. Now, he told him exactly how much daily bread was. He said it was one omer, one omer of food that he would provide for them. One omer, about two liters for every person who lives in your house. It was hard to take only one omer for everybody in your house because the food God gave them was so good. I mean, the first morning, they walked out of their tents, they looked out in their front yard, and there for acres, maybe even miles, were millions of sweet, delicious, flaky pieces of heavenly bread, so good they never tasted anything like it. They named it manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? It was that good. In the morning, he fed them manna. In the evening, he fed them quail. Or in the Texas international version, it says uh, biscuits and chicken. I'm pretty sure that God is Southern. You guys with me? Okay, so you're not going with me on God being Southern. All right, well, we can at least agree that God is good, amen? And God gives his goodness to us. The problem with God sharing his goodness with us is it often brings out the worst in us. And so as God served breakfast and he served dinner, he also served a law. Take only your daily bread. You're going to want more. It's that good. But take only your daily bread, and then everyone gets something. For a while, they, they obeyed this law. Um, they took only their daily bread until one morning someone broke it. Someone took more than they needed. And we're not sure who did it. We, don't, we definitely don't know why they did it, but I wonder if they're anything like us. Maybe it went something like this. Maybe it was one of those early risers, those to-do list people, those type A personalities, right? I'm married to one of those. Anybody else here? We can start a sport group. All right, so this person, maybe they got there early to the breakfast buffet, right? And they collected their daily bread, one omer for every person in their house. And when they were done, they were so hardworking, they were so efficient that they were still the only ones at breakfast, and maybe they looked around and they thought, you know what? I worked the earliest. I worked the hardest. I worked the fastest and the best. I deserve more bread. Maybe it wasn't like that at all. Maybe they collected their daily bread and then they looked around and they just simply did the math. They thought, oh, there's millions of pieces left. I mean, who's going to miss a little more bread? Whatever the reason, they took some leftovers and they put it in the pockets of their toga and they went back in their tent and they stored it in their uh, 401, I'm sorry, their refrigerator in case God didn't keep his promise the next day, in case he stopped feeding them. And God became angry. It says that God became angry and he turned their leftovers into maggots and it began to stink and it no longer satisfied I can't think of a better picture for the American life. I can just speak for myself. That, you know, I can fill up my shopping cart, fill up my resume, fill up my calendar, fill up my walls, fill up my house, fill up my closet, but I'm never filled up because it turns out that God has wired me to not be filled with anything from this world, but to only be filled by him. God had a special plan for his people. He was moving them from slavery to the promised land. He had picked out the perfect neighborhood for them. A beautiful cul-de-sac where they would be surrounded by neighbors who don't know anything about God. And they are supposed to live in such a way when they get there that all the neighbors will look at them and see what God is like. He wants all the nations to look at his people and to say, wow, their God is good. I could trust a God like that. That's God's mission. God's mission is to show the world how good and trustworthy he is. 
Do you want to be a people that show Tyler, Texas, how good and trustworthy your God is? Then take only your daily bread. More isn't going to satisfy you. And then pass the biscuits so that others get to taste and see for themselves just how good and trustworthy God is. God's mission is to show the world that he is good and he can be trusted. God's command. We go to the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul is being sent out as the very first missionary to Gentiles, to non-Jews. It's a momentous watershed moment in the history of church. It's never been done before. And they, they ordain him and they send him out. And the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John, they lay their hands on Paul and they pray for him. And as he goes for this one-of-a-kind, first-ever mission, they give him an important piece of parting advice. One final important instruction. What is it? All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I had been eager to do all along. Who are the poor? We now believe that 80% of the Christians living in Jerusalem in the first century were living in abject poverty. The Bible defines economic poverty differently than the way we do. If you don't have bread to eat today, you're poor. So 80% of the Christians in that church that morning, when they prayed Paul out, when they sent him out, and they said, remember the poor, 80% of the room was hungry. And they were saying, Paul, as you go and you preach good news, don't forget us. And he said, I am eager to remember you. You see, these people weren't just numbers and statistics and facts and problems to be solved. They weren't just numbers, they were his neighbors. They weren't just facts, they had faces. They weren't just problems, they were people. He knew them and he knew their stories. He had been in that church for years, worshiping alongside them. He knew their names. And so he looked out on the crowd that said, remember me, and he saw familiar faces. He saw a listless toddler sitting on the lap of a mother whose breasts were depleted by malnutrition. A father with tears still wet on his cheeks from burying a little one too soon. And they said, remember us. And he said, I'm eager to. This word eager means a, a fervent desire, an urgency that cannot be denied. Are you eager? Do you have a sense of urgency about caring for and remembering the poor? If not, you might need to leave your zip code. Because poverty may still be for you a number. It's not yet a neighbor. It might still be for you a problem, but it's not a person yet. It might still be a collection of facts and data, but it doesn't have a face yet. But when it has a face and a name, it changes you, and it gives you an eagerness and an urgency that you can't stop. I remember the day that happened to me. November 14th, 2007. I was in Ethiopia. I had a flat tire. It takes a long time for a musician to change a flat tire. <laughs> so I had time to make a friend. This little girl, she came wandering out of the bushes toward me. I don't see very well without these glasses. After about 10 feet, you all just fall off into a haze. And she was just a blur coming at me. And, and so I lifted my camera lens to try to get a better look. And when she saw it raised, she raised two fingers to her mouth to say to me the only way she could, feed me. 
I motioned her toward me with open arms, and she came. As she came closer, I could see more of the details. I took it all in. I'll never forget it. Her skin wasn't the beautiful brown God meant it to be, but it was an ashy gray. Her eyes were runny. Her nose was crusty. Her tongue was bright red. It was huge like a strawberry, so big she couldn't close her mouth around it. Even if we spoke the same language, she couldn't have asked me for help. She couldn't have told me where it hurts. She came closer, I noticed that she had no pants, that the, the dress she was wearing was actually somebody else's oversized shirt. She came a bit closer and I noticed she was missing toenails. I put my hand on the back of her head to pray for her and I felt huge slick spots where starvation had robbed her of hair. I love to make kids laugh, I love to play with kids. And, and I, I try to tickle her and get her to just Smile, just any little grin, and she just stared back lifeless, just dead. And I took a bottle of water and a granola bar. It's all I had. I wasn't on a feeding mission, but I had to do something, and I pulled that out, and I put it in her, in her bony arms, and I pulled her skeletal frame in to me, and I just held her, and I prayed. God, save this one. God, let your kingdom come to this one. Give her something to eat. Let her go to school. Give her clean water to drink. Help me find her mom and dad. We've got to save this one, God. Please. I quickly found a pastor in the area. I walked her there, and he took her hand, and he promised he would do his best to care for her. And as we pulled away, I could see her in the rearview mirror, and I've never stopped seeing her. And when I don't want to get in another airplane, ride in another rental car, or sleep another night away from my own children, her face is there. And I am eager, overjoyed even, that I get to be a big mouth for people like that. I've never forgotten, because she's not a number. She's not a problem, she's a person. She's not a fact, she's got a face. God's mission is to show himself to all the nations that he is good and he can be trusted. God's command to every one of his people, not just missionaries and ministers, Mother Teresa, but all of us, is to remember the poor and to do so eagerly. Lastly, God's method God's method is us. We are God's plan A to get this done. And there is no plan B. We're it. Paul, after he was sent out and told, remember the poor, he did just that. He preached the gospel. Tens of thousands of people came to faith in Jesus, and they accumulated in churches and places like Ephesus and Antioch and Thessalonica and Rome and Corinth. And in the as these churches would grow, Paul would mentor them, sometimes by visiting personally and sometimes with correspondence from a distance. But he would inevitably write to these churches and tell them about the need of their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. They don't fly your flag, they don't speak your language, their skin is a different shade, but they're your family. And so he would tell them, you get the privilege, the opportunity, the gift of caring for them. 
And so he would ask them to pass some of their leftovers, to share their biscuits, and he would carry their offering, their leftovers, back to the church in Jerusalem so that through the church in Jerusalem, the needs of the community could be met. That's God's method for caring for the poor, that God's people would take their daily bread and pass the rest to the church so that through the church, the needs of people can be met and God can be known as good and trustworthy. So he would write letters. He wrote a letter first to the church in Corinth, the first Corinthians, and in that letter, he told them about this great privilege they have to give to the church in Jerusalem, and he tells them they need to create some leftovers. He realized that most of them didn't have anything to give, and so he told them, you know, maybe you need to sell some lands or downsize your house or cut back on your caffeine habit or go from a smartphone to a dumb phone, but somehow you need to create some leftover biscuits. And then he writes them a second letter, and he says, now that you've done that, now that you have leftovers, I'm coming to collect them. And there's just joy leaping off the page. He's so excited that they get to give. And so he says this to them about the offering. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13, 14, 15. Each verse answers an important question that you may have about giving. The first question, how much do we give? Where he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, our desire in doing this offering is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. This word, hard-pressed, is the Greek word thalipsis, which in your New Testament almost always is translated as tribulation. It's the idea of a person being trapped under an enormous weight, a huge boulder, and it's going to be the end of them. It is squeezing the life out of them. And if we're honest, that's how a lot of us feel about giving. Oh, I have to give. It's a burden, it's a drudgery, it's a duty, it's an obligation. And he says, no, 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 you don't need to treat giving like a burden, but it's a blessing. You get to give. But how much do we give? Well, that same word, hard press, answers that question for us as well. In America, the average American gives 2.14% of their disposable income away. Disposable income is everything you have left after you've met all of your basic needs. So the average American and Christians are not different. The average American gives 2.14% of what is left over away. And so in America, when pastors speak about giving, which is a really dangerous thing to do, you want to clear out a church, talk about money, right? But if we do talk about it in church, the main goal of the pastor is really to get those who are giving nothing, which is most, get those who are giving nothing to just give something, and to get those who are giving something to give a little more. Think about how ridiculous that is, really. The goal of most preaching about giving is to get a room full of people who have said, all to Jesus I surrender, to just surrender something. The pastor's goal here is to get people to give a minimum. Paul's goal here was to set a maximum. He's telling them, how much can you give? You can give until giving a dollar more, an hour more would leave you hard-pressed. Give until giving a cent more would leave your life threatened. And he was speaking to a group of people so overjoyed and in awe of the goodness of God 
that they were eager. They were eager to share him with anyone who had need. They were eager to show the world how good and trustworthy he is. So he had to, before the offering plates passed, he had to say, don't give too much. I know it's gonna be hard to stop you, but don't put the deed of your house in the offering plates this morning. No need for you to go homeless so someone else can have a roof over their head. Don't starve your children so someone else's can eat, but you can give right up to that. Can you imagine coming to church next Sunday and before the offering plates are passed, Chris has to say that. Hey, some of you got carried away last week. (laughs) Rain it in. And so how much can we give? Well, the maximum you can give is until it threatens your life. But no matter what you give, do it with joy. Second question we want to answer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14. What do we give? At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. And who knows, maybe someday in the future, you'll be the one in need, and they'll have the plenty to supply for you. Isn't it incredible that our God has promised us that we will always have the poor among us, but also that there will always be someone rich enough to share with the poor? So there will always be someone who's getting to make God known as good and trustworthy. So what do we give? We're giving the excess, the plenty, the surplus. That is really from God anyway. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. I'm standing in this church this morning. I didn't say this in the first service because I'm a little emotional when I'm tired. I don't know if I can keep it together. Plus, Teresa Sherman's here. She cries constantly, and it makes me cry, all right? So I'm not gonna look in your direction. But there are so many people in this church who invested in me. I'm not a self-made man. I have a picture of me in the preschool at First Baptist Tyler being held by some woman I don't even know. I don't remember her, but she gave me graham crackers and Kool-Aid and taught me about Jesus. I have parents who stayed together and loved each other and read me books and made sure I had clothes and shoes and food, and I didn't do any of that. My whole life, I've turned to this faucet and clean water has come out. I did nothing to do that. It just was there for me. My whole life is just manna upon manna upon manna upon manna rained down from heaven, and I don't deserve any of it, and it's all mine. How good is God? And out of the surplus of all of his lavish gifts, I get to now give. So what do we give? What we've been given. It's not ours anyway. Lastly, verse 15. The goal of this giving is equality. (laughs) That word is a tricky one, isn't it? That word has been hijacked by politicians. But I want you to understand, before that word equality was ever part of anybody's platform, it was part of scripture. And so we gotta be careful to define it the way that God does and not the way people down here do. And so God defines that word equality for us in the very next sentence. He says, the goal is equality. Well, what does that mean? The kind that was written about in Exodus 16. The one who gathered much because he had much family didn't have too much. And the one who gathered little because he had little family didn't have too little. But when everyone gathered just as much manna as they needed, everyone had enough and everyone got to taste and see that God is good and trustworthy. That is the goal. Why do we give? So that there will be equality. So everyone has what they need. 
so that everyone can taste and see how good God is. But the second reason that we give is to bring God glory. In chapter nine, the very next chapter, he says that this service, this giving, the sharing that you're doing, it's not only supplying the needs of people so they have what they need, but it is also resulting in God's people all over the world giving thanks to God. That all over the world there are people because someone shared with them who now believe that God is good and they trust him and they worship him and they praise him this morning. What a beautiful thing that is. That's why we give, to glorify God. God's mission is to prove himself to the world as a God who is good and trustworthy. God's command to every single one of us is that we would have a eagerness to remember the poor. And God's method is us, that as we share what he's already given to us, we do it with an attitude of joy, knowing that we're being blessed, not burdened. And when we give, it results in thanksgiving to God. I was in Nairobi, Kenya, in the Mathari slum, second largest slum in all of Africa. One million people crammed into just three square miles of rusting corrugated metal. It was raining that day. My friend and I, we sloshed our way through the serpentine paths of that slum until we finally arrived at Elliot's house. Elliot was 18 years old, dapper Kenyan young man wearing his school uniform, that seafoam green tie and gray sweater, standing in front of a house smaller than the average American bathroom, just six by eight, 48 square feet, with a smile on his face so big, it didn't make sense until he explained, well, my house is small, but my God is very big. He welcomed us into his home. We sat on his bed and he began to tell me his story so that when he was five years old, his mother passed away, leaving his dad to care for him all by himself. Now, Elliot's dad is a day laborer, most common job on the planet, about two billion people today. They go out every day. They take any job that they can get. There's no long-term employment at all. And they do that job for any wage that's offered. His dad was a day laborer. He worked very hard every chance that he got and working his hardest, he couldn't earn just $2 a day. That's not enough money to put food on the table. And so Elliot's dad, he, he starved himself. He skipped meal after meal, day after day, just so his boy could have something to eat. It wasn't much, a little rice, a few beans, maybe on a good day of plantain. He, just, he said, he remembers this one incredible day, though. when He can't remember if it was Christmas or if it was a birthday, some kind of special occasion, but his dad came through the front door, so he'll never forget it, with a special gift for him. They got to share a, a piece of meat. Never seen that before. A little one who doesn't get proper nutrition, you know, their immune system wears out, it wears thin. Elliot was always sick with something. There was no money to go see a doctor. He'd just hope and wait. Now, if you're, if you're born into what we call poverty here in America, you at least have the hope of public school. I mean, I can't convince my four kids at home that school is a gift from God, but it really is, right? We have so many teachers in my family. My mom's a teacher. My sister's a teacher. My brother-in-law's a principal. So many of my aunts and uncles and cousins and everybody. We have so many teachers. I'm surrounded by them, and they're gifts from God. I wish you got paid like it, because I don't think people understand what a gift you are. You see, if you're born into poverty here in America, you get to go to school for free. We're free. And if you work hard enough and long enough, and let's be honest, some of us have to work a lot harder and longer than others, but eventually they'll hand you this magical piece of paper called a diploma that opens up a world of options and possibilities, and you can almost certainly give your children a better life than the one that you were born into, but not in Kenya. 
not in most of the developing world where public school has to be paid for like private school here. And how can a, how can a father who can't afford to put bread on a plate possibly afford to put books in a bag and a uniform on a back and pay fees on top of that to take care of teachers? It's a hopeless situation. It seemed that Elliot would never break free until a good and trustworthy God knocked on his door. Standing at the door that day when Elliot was seven years old was a pastor from a church right there inside the slum. Elliot said that that preacher was out of his mind. He talked like a crazy person. He made the wildest promises. There was no way anyone could do the stuff he said he would do. He promised Elliot that he would not go to bed hungry anymore, that every day he would have something to eat. He told me if he got sick with a toothache, a stomachache, or something truly life-threatening, that there would always be doctors and dentists and nurses and counselors to put him back together again. He promised to make he could go to school. He could learn to read and write and add and subtract and the books and the uniform and the meal. It would all be taken care of for him. He told him if he worked really hard and if he was very smart, he could even someday go on to university. But he admitted that's not for everybody. I mean, maybe you're not all that smart. Maybe you're not all that hardworking. Maybe you're a musician. Um, he said, it's okay, while you're working on that high school diploma, we're gonna teach you a skill. You'll learn how to work on computers, maybe even fix them, build stuff with your hands. But when you graduate, you'll be able to give your kids a better life than the one you've had. Poverty ends with you, he promised. And that wasn't even the best promise. The best he saved for last. He got down low so he could look Elliot right in the eyes. And he gave him a promise that some of you are desperate to hear this morning. He said, God sees you. God loves you. God has a plan for your life. And that was the day that everything changed. That was the day that Elliot became one of Compassion International's children. Compassion International invented child sponsorship in 1952, and to this day, they're the highest-rated child sponsorship organization of their kind. What kind is that? Well, it's the kind we just read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's the kind that believes that the most powerful force on earth is not a government or a corporation, no matter who is running it. But the most powerful force on earth always has been, it is today, and it always will be the body of Jesus Christ, the local church. And so always, only exclusively through the church around the world, Compassion International serves the poorest of the poor, caring for little boys and girls born into families that earn less than $2 a day. Every child cared for by a church in their own neighborhood and guaranteed five things, education, health care, proper nutrition, clean water to drink, but most importantly, a Bible of their very own and the gospel. Jesus Christ. Because compassion cares for children through the body of Christ, demonstrates for them the love of Christ, and preaches the good news of Christ, on average, 500 children every single day come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Compassion International. Every child needs a sponsor. A sponsor is someone who gives just $38 a month to underwrite, to pay for the care that one child is receiving from that church. But the best sponsors don't just give their money. That's the easy part for most of us. The best sponsors give themselves. That's a lot harder. 
I asked Elliot his sponsor's name. He said, my sponsor's name, Nick Erskine, Northern California. I did not have the heart to tell him Northern California is not part of the dude's name. I just played along, okay? So I said, hey, does uh, Nick Erskine, Northern California, ever write you letters? Does he ever do that? Because every sponsor can and they should, but sometimes we forget. And he got so excited and he went over to this little hiding place in the corner of his house where he keeps his valuables. And he pulled out this big tangled ball of plastic and cloth. He began to unwrap it gingerly like inside was the holy grail. When he finally got it all unwound, he laid the contents of this precious package in my lap. And it was an inch thick stack of letters, an inch thick stack of letters from Nick Erskine, Northern California that started arriving at his house when he was seven. And they were still showing up when he was 18. He said these letters are so important to him because of algebra. He says, Sundays he's sitting in math class. He has no idea what the value of X is. Can I get a witness from just anybody here, right? Just anybody. <laughs> Don't you wish you had a sponsor when you were in high school? I could have used one of those. But he says on those days when he just doesn't know the answer and he's feeling so dumb and defeated, he said he can hear poverty speaking to him. And poverty says to him, you're stupid. You're nobody. You're nothing. You're worthless. Nobody cares. And you're never going to get out of here. On those hardest days, he sprints out of the classroom, the bell rings, he hurries home and he pulls out the letters from Nick Erskine in Northern California. And he reads page after page until he believes something good and true about himself again. I read them with my own eyes. I'm praying for you today and every day, he wrote. I love you so very much. I am so proud of the man that you're becoming. Don't you quit, he wrote. I believe God has a big plan for your life. And he keeps going because he's not alone. I wanted so badly that day for Nick Erskine, Northern California, to see what I was seeing, right? The best of us are skeptical, and I get it because there are so many scams out there. I wanted him to see for himself that the $38 he gives to Compassion, it went where they said it would go. It did everything they said it would do. I wanted him to see for himself those letters that he wrote. They made it from his mailbox across the oceans and the miles, not just into a young man's hands, but deep into a young man's heart. I wanted him to see that, but I couldn't afford the plane ticket to bring Nick all the way to Elliot. So I brought Elliot to Nick. Watch this. Can we back that up? How good you are to me. I love you very much, and you mean a whole thing to me. You are like my dad, you are like my mom. Give me hope and strength to be well. Thank you for all the things you've been doing for me, and for the ones you continue doing. I pray to God to bless you, to give you hope, to encourage you. Because one man in California gave, one boy in Kenya got to become a man. And he got to taste and see that God really is good and that he can be trusted. This morning, you have the opportunity to show a child that God is good to give them the opportunity to trust him as their savior. I'm gonna ask you to sponsor a child. We have tables in three of the corners of this room, and on each of those tables, there are 
so many of these child sponsorship packets, and on that packet is the name, the face, the birthday, and inside the story of a real child. That is the only packet in the world that exists for that child. So you'll be the only sponsor that child will have. That cute little face will be on your refrigerator, and it'll be the only fridge in the world with that face on it. And you'll write letters back and forth. My kids now are 16, 15, 12, and 10. When my kids turned five, I sponsored a child for them, just as a pen pal in some far off place, but I've seen it change my kids. My kids don't say they're starving when they know they're just hungry. They don't stand in front of a packed closet and say, Dad, I have nothing to wear. They know better. I've seen it give my kids a gift of perspective and give someone else's child the gift of life. So I'll let you sponsor this morning as many kids as it takes to give the gift of perspective to all the spoiled children in your life, right? If you're a grandparent and you're just shocked at the mess your kids have made of your grandchildren, you can fix that tonight (laughs) for the low, low price of just $38. And so I'm gonna ask you to go to that table and choose one of those packets. And inside, let me just show you this very quickly. Uh, Inside, I'll just show you the part that we need. The part at the top is information about your child, front and back. This middle section is the form used to write your very first letter. Please don't give that to us today. Take it home, write a great letter. Put a picture of your family, your obese cat on there, right? Whatever you want to do. And then we gave you an envelope you could put it in so you can mail that from home. But the only part I need from you this morning is just this light blue rectangle at the very bottom. It's so simple. It'll take you a minute. You just tear it off and fill that out front and back. You can make your first month's payment by check, cash, credit card, um, uh, trade us your firstborn. I mean, whatever you got, we'll take that. All right? And so I would just ask you to take that, fill it out, and then turn it in. Please don't leave with it. It's the only one that we have. I know that we're late. Are we late? Would you like me to just pray and go? Let's just pray and go. All right. Will you just come pray for us instead? And that'll give me an opportunity to get to a table. Hey, I'll be at this table in the corner. I'd love to meet you, answer any questions that you have. Thanks for hanging out late with us. God bless you. So this is a call. We are blessed to be a blessing. Uh, and so let us pray and figure out how the Lord is impressing upon our hearts to respond. Father God, Lord, thank you that as we look out on all the problems and the tribulations and the hardships of this world, where we look out and we don't have a solution, there's no might in each one of us that we could accomplish a solution on our own strength. And yet, Lord, you have provided Ultimately, through the gift of your son to give hope to a hopeless generation, but also as you have called those whom you've redeemed to be your hands and feet, your ambassadors, that if you have given us grace and provision, you have called us to be gracious providers in your name. And so whether that's sponsoring a kid's education in the Dominican Republic, whether that's sponsoring the needs, simple needs of food and education across the world through compassion, whatever it is, may we respond rightly. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Y'all are dismissed.